Hi, my name is Pearl. I have the privilege of serving in kids' ministry, and today's scripture reading is from the book of Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, from the NIV. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. This is God's word. Thank you, Pearl. (laughs) Church, we've been exploring what it means through the New Testament book of Titus to be a faithful presence within your intimate relationships, within the church, and also within the culture. But now we come to a passage that explains for us how this is all possible. Let's pray together. Whether you're new to Christian faith, exploring, you've been a Christian for years, we need to hear the truth of this passage. Let's pray that we have ears to hear what God would say to us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace. And we are asking this morning that you would enable us not only to understand your grace, but to receive your grace. And that as a result, we would be changed by grace. I pray that for every one of us. Holy Spirit, speak. Open our hearts. We ask together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Well, there's the story of the Baptist minister who had an elderly woman in his congregation who was very broke. And as she lived in a rented house, she had trouble paying her rent at all and was very much in debt. Well, the church community got wind of her difficult financial situation, and so they got together without her knowing, and they gathered a significant amount of money as a love gift in order to help her. So the Baptist minister collected this gift and he came around to her house with this generous donation from the community and he knocked on the door and he rang the bell, but there was no answer, which was a surprise because she was usually home. She was usually a shut-in. So he came again the next day and he knocked and he rang the bell and again, there was no answer, which began to trouble him. But then on the weekend, as they attended church, there she was. And so he went up to her and said, well, I I came to your house. I knocked on the door. I, I rang the bell. I came the next day, but you were not home. She said, oh, I was home. But I thought you were the rent collector. And I was so afraid of the rent collector because I have no money. And so I hid inside and I did not answer the door. This woman thought someone had arrived to take something from her, when in fact, someone had arrived to give something to her. I share this story as an illustration because for many of us, we view God as the rent collector. 
For those of you who are not yet Christians or maybe you've been a Christian for years, this is how you view God. Like, oh man, I don't wanna go to church. He's just gonna knock on my door and be like, pay up. You're in debt and you gotta owe. I don't wanna read my Bible. I don't wanna pray. The rent collector's in town. He's knocking on my door and I don't have what it takes. And you, you hide inside for fear. You're trying to find an alternative line of credit. You're, you're trying to find a payment plan in order to, to get ready to, to pay what you owe. But that's not the God of the Bible. He comes and he's arrived knocking on the door, not because he wants something, but because he's giving you something in spite of what we owe. He has come to give, and that because of grace. And it is this grace that brings change in our lives. But sadly, many of us, we don't change because we are hiding, looking to see what we have in order to change. Some of you, in this season of life, you're struggling, maybe even with addictions, and you've lost hope, wondering, is it possible for me to change? What do I need to do? And you're scrounging around, you're like looking down in the sofa to find you know, coins, as it were, to try to see if you can come up with what you need in order to change. Others of you, you might not be in an addiction, you're like, well, I'm very involved in the church, and, and you serve, you're like, oh, I serve, but with little joy and a lot of irritation. You know what I'm talking about? You don't need to raise your hand. You're like, oh, I, I come every Sunday. I serve on three teams. I show up to community group even when other slackers don't. You're like, oh, I've got joy in my heart. Really? Well, please notify your face because we don't see it. <laughs> and you're wondering like, man, am I just going through the motions? Like what's happening? For others of you, you feel like your growth has just plateaued. There's no like obvious, you know, sin pattern in your life. You're like, look, I'm avoiding the stuff, but like, man, I, I feel numb. I feel like I'm not growing. I feel stuck. I, I certainly know that feeling. Wherever you are, is there hope for us? Yes, the answer is the grace of God. And here in Titus chapter two, Paul moves from talking about behavior to belief which is surprising because Paul's typical order in his other letters is to start out with the doctrine and then begin to work through the response, the application. But in his letter to a church leader on the island of Crete, Titus, this order is reversed. He's been laying out for us through this letter what it means to be a faithful presence in our homes, in our community, and in the culture. But now... In the middle of the letter, he explains how this is all possible. And when he does, he uses the word grace. The Christian faith not only tells us what needs to change, but how it changes. And the answer is grace. Christians use the word grace all the time, but what does it mean? And how does grace actually change us? Well, there's three things you need to know, and it changes everything about your life. The first is this, grace redeems your past. How does grace change me? Grace redeems your past, which is good news because for many of us, the past is often described like an invisible burden that you carry everywhere you go on your, your shoulders. You feel the, the weight of it. You're longing to find freedom. 
Of course, this is not new to us. Humanity's experienced the weight of guilt for as long as we've existed. Now, in the first century, in the pagan view of the culture in which Titus lived, you could hopefully find deliverance from this burden of sorrow and pain and shame and guilt by showing yourself worthy to the gods. That was the idea in the Greco-Roman world. If you did, if you did the work, there might be an intervention. There might be an unveiling. There might be an appearance. And there's a Greek word for that. And it's actually the word that Paul uses in this passage several times, an appearing. It's the classic word the Greeks used to describe an intervention of the gods. So show yourself worthy and maybe, just maybe, you'll get an intervention that can deal with that burden. Now, of course, there's modern versions of this. There's a traditional version and a progressive version. The traditional view is, well, if you follow the, the law, then you can remove the burden of your guilt. If you just do the right things, if you just follow the truth, if you just get yourself together, then you will be free. That is the message a lot of people are preaching, even in some churches, like, here are the rules, follow them. Clean yourself up, get your act together. If you're a, an addict, or you're just you know, spiraling down in your life, or, or you're just struggling with all this shame, just do the work, and you will be free. It's a tra traditional view. And then there'll be an intervention, and there'll be a change, an epiphany. And then there's the progressive view, which is be yourself. Follow your natural desires. What's keeping you back, what's adding to all that shame and guilt is, is the norms of society, and you just need to be free to do what you want. Isn't that the testimony we often hear from people or you see online? People are like, man, I used to follow society's norms, but now I'm free to do what I want. It's like a testimony. But what I'd like to point out is the Christian faith is not rep represented in any of those views. That's not how the intervention comes. Christianity says, to be clear, that we are all in a helpless condition. We are enslaved to sin by nature and by choice. Sin being this radical self-centeredness, this anti-God bias and state of mind, and that guilt is not just a psychological experience, it is a moral and a legal reality. We're all in trouble. You're like, I thought this was about grace. I'm getting there, just hang on. But earth-shattering events have happened. There has been an epiphany. There has been an unveiling. There has been an appearing. It is the intervention of God. He has showed up knocking on the door, not to collect your rent, but to give you salvation. That's what it says in verse 11. For the grace of God, and here's the word, has appeared. You Greeks, the intervention you're looking for, the grace of God has been unveiled that offers salvation to how many people? All people. You don't need to know the Greek to know it means everyone. To all people. The intervention we need 
to be freed from the weight of our past is neither from religious labor, nor will it come from self-expression. It comes from the salvation of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you might say, wait a minute. Was God not previously gracious? And all of a sudden, he's now become gracious? No. The grace of God has always been there. It's not as if God was like, super grumpy for thousands of years and then finally he got some like good coffee, had a great morning. He's like, I guess I'll show him grace. That's how a lot of people view the Bible. Old Testament, grumpy God. New Testament, grace of God. But nothing could be farther from the truth. God describes himself as a God abounding in mercy, a gracious God. Paul is saying that the grace of God already existing has now been publicly available to everyone. How? Because he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who showed up into our world to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Jesus, the God-man, died in our place as a substitute, made a payment for the debt that we owed, and given us the favor that we don't deserve. And that is what redeems our past. See, this is key to everything else that you learn in the Christian life. Earlier in this passage, as we've seen over the last few weeks, Paul gives instruction to all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. Men and women, young and old, rich and poor. Why? Because this salvation is made available for everyone. It's grace. You can be relieved and redeemed from the shame and the fear and the guilt and the burden of your past, not because of what you have done or what you can do, but because of what Christ has done. We receive total forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. Not partial forgiveness, not mostly forgiveness, but full forgiveness. See, this is the glorious truth. The moment that you believe in Christ, the bad choices, the deceit, the lies, the shame, the hurt are all redeemed. The debt we owe because of the things that we've done has already been paid. The grace of God has appeared. He comes knocking. He said, I'm not here to collect the rent. You don't need to hide. I've come to offer you grace. Now this is key because in a moment, Paul will tell us that we need to renounce certain things. But listen, we can only renounce what we know to be forgiven. We can only renounce what we know to be pardoned. We can only deal with something in the present if we know that provision has already been made in the past. If you're here with us this morning and you don't know the freedom from guilt and shame and the burden of your past that comes through Jesus Christ, today is your day to believe and to receive. It's not about what you can do. It's the message today is not go and figure it out and maybe God will like you and accept you someday. He's not collecting the rent. He's saying receive grace for the guilt of your past. Yeah, we can give an amen to that. And this is key. 
Now, some of you are like, I know, I know. Grace redeems your past. Many of you know this. But sadly, for some of you, your idea of the Christian life stops there. You're like, yeah, I was saved by grace, but I can only grow by struggle. Well, you need to hear the second point. How does grace change you? First, grace redeems your past. But secondly, grace transforms your present. What does grace have to do with the here and now? It transforms your present. Grace not only brings an initial change, but continual change. And it's not limited to just one part of your life. So Paul goes on, because this grace has appeared, growth is not just a possibility, it is a reality. Jesus meets us in whatever state we are in, but he never leaves us there. And so he says, this is a very interesting verse, verse 12. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. I wonder how many of us have thought about grace as a teacher. Now, it's interesting that Paul uses this language to teach. It would have been very familiar to these first century Greek and Roman citizens. The word that he used was very much about how you became educated, how you would become civilized, how you would even become virtuous. And so Paul takes that word, training or education, and he says the education that you really need takes place in a relationship with God by grace. So now let's apply it. What do I do with my desires? Because if you're honest this morning, you have all kinds of conflicting desires. You're like, oh, the, there's the things I know I should do. And then there's the things that I like know that I shouldn't do. And like sometimes these desires win and sometimes those desires win. And sadly in our culture, you know, on the one hand, the traditional view is just, well, you've got to just suppress them. And then other in the culture say, well, you've just got to serve them. Whatever desires you have, just serve them. But here, we are told that there are things within our own heart that we actually must say no to. Now, let me just say, this is probably one of the most countercultural aspects of Christianity in 2023, that you actually need to say no to yourself. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? Like, like self-denial is the new immorality. <laughs> Like if there's one thing that's immoral, don't you dare deny yourself. That's what culture says. Well, I want it. They're like, well, then you must have it. <laughs> Whatever you want. Express. The school even should be a place not for your formation, but for your performance. We should give you maximum ability to do whatever it is that you want. But don't you dare say no to yourself. It's often the advice that you might get from a friend. Like, stop saying no to yourself. Just say yes. Yes. <laughs> and then they go on like, you know, these like testimonials like, guys, I used to say no to myself all the time, but you know how I experienced freedom? I said yes. And everyone's like, so brave. <laughs> so brave. But Paul's like, you got to say no to some. This is so countercultural. 
That's not even mentioning when Jesus said to the whole world, hey, pick up your cross and die. Like, deny yourself. He says there's things in your heart here, Paul is saying, you need to say no to. And they are ungodliness and worldly passions. This can refer to many things. It could refer to lust, illicit sexual desire and expression. It can refer to unrighteous anger and injustice, selfish ambition, envy. These are all examples of ungodliness and worldly passions. And he says, you must say no to these things. Now, some of us, we understand this. We're like, yeah, I know we need to say no to that. But perhaps many of us try, but we see little result. Like, man, I know it's wrong, but I just do it. I still want to do it. So how do we change? Well, notice again Paul's language. Paul says, present tense, we must be trained to say no. We must be trained to say no. Why does he say this? I think he says we must be trained or educated in the present tense for two reasons. Number one, Paul wants us to understand that our present transformation is a process, not a one-time event. Which is important because some of us, we just want to get zapped. Like, some of you, you're looking for the next conference or the next podcast. You're like, oh, this is the thing. This is going to be the moment. From this moment on, I will never struggle with any unwanted desires ever again. If I just practice this discipline, if I just read that one book. There are some Christians who talk about this in that way. They're like, oh yeah, I got saved in, you know, 78 and uh, never struggled with an unwanted desire ever since. And I'm like, liar, <laughs> which is a sin. So deal with it. See, many of us, we want to get zapped. We want this instant removal. Maybe there's an unwanted desire, a pattern of addiction, and you're like, I just want it to, get, to disappear. But Paul says, this is a process. We learn continually to say, no, we are trained by grace. So that's one reason why he says it. But the second reason, I believe Paul says in the present tense, we need to be trained to say no, is because there's all kinds of wrong and ineffective reasons to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Let me say and explain what I mean by that. You could say no to outward temptation for all kinds of ineffective or even wrong motivations. Here's a few examples. You could say no to an outward temptation just because you don't want to look bad to other people. You want to save face. You could say no to worldly passions because you just don't want to get caught or you just don't want to deal with the, the natural consequences. Or, to use a different example, you could say no to worldly passions just because you want health and wealth in your life. This is often the message communicated by the so-called prosperity gospel, which is not the gospel at all. A message taught in, sadly, a lot of churches across the globe where, hey, the real essence of salvation is health and wealth and you know Jesus is a stepping stone. Just trust in him and then you'll get the money and the physical health and beauty that you really want. And everyone's like, well, sign me up. That, that's what I want. I want the health and the wealth and Gwyneth couldn't give it to me so like maybe Jesus will. So yeah, I'm in. 
But see, all of those motives are not what Paul's talking about here. There's all kind of ineffective and even wrong motivations to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. All of those focus on the self. Paul doesn't appeal to any of these motives for change. He doesn't say, guys, you need to say no to ungodliness so that you get rich. He doesn't say, guys, you need to say no to ungodliness so that you'll look good at church on a Sunday. So how does this change happen? He says, you need to be taught by the grace of God. The grace of God, the love of Jesus Christ is what changes you and empowers you to overcome these sinful desires. Christ's love for you, knowing that, experiencing that, not only points you in a new direction, but empowers you with new affections. When you meditate on and, and dwell upon what, what Christ has done for you, it changes how you view the temptations of life. See, there's a misunderstanding about grace in the church. Some Christians think grace means I can do whatever I want and God will wink at my sin. As if God's like, ooh, you've been naughty this weekend, but it's fine. Grace, you know, God gives you a little wink. I'm like, oh, I sinned, Lord. He's like, no problem, grace. <laughs> a lot of people view grace in that way. But think about Christians who abuse that. Why would we willingly pursue the very things for which Jesus Christ died? It's like having a spouse that, that says to you like, hey, no matter what you do, I'll always forgive you. And you say to your spouse, great, well, I'm going to Vegas this weekend. I'm gonna like do whatever I want and I'm gonna come back and you're gonna forgive me, right? It's all good, see ya. What does that communicate? Many Christians view grace in that way, but listen, friends, grace is not a license to sin. It is a motivation to love. Grace is not a license to sin. The grace of God is not, hey guys, do whatever, I'll clean up the mess later. It's a motivation to love. God's grace has showed up not so that we can stay in our sin, but so that we can be free from our sin with the power that he provides. If grace has touched your heart, if grace is continually received, that's what teaches you to say no to worldly passions and ungodliness. We need to allow the gospel to teach us, the Holy Spirit bringing the truth of God's love to bear on our heart in every situation. The Holy Spirit enters that dialogue and that moan of temptation when you're like, I know I shouldn't do this. I know I should do this, but I don't have the power. The Holy Spirit says, Christ loves you. He redeems you. This is what you're made for, and I'm gonna give you the power to make the right choice. You might even say that the Holy Spirit's your personal gospel trainer. Some of you are like, I'm looking for a trainer. It's too expensive. This one's free. Christ empowers us with new affections that overpower the old desires. See, this is massive and it's very practical and it's changed my life. See, one way to try to deal with bad desires is to focus on their badness so much so in the hope that it becomes distasteful to you and that you won't do it anymore. And a lot of Christians only use that method. 
So take a, an addiction to pornography, for example. It is good and right to show the evil of pornography. But that's only half of the picture. You're not going to find freedom by only focusing on the badness of sin. Or it could be a substance addiction. Part of the picture is acknowledging the badness of it. But that's not the whole picture. You need to love something else more. You need to love something else more. So in my younger years, as many of you know, as I've shared my story, I was stuck in these terrible cycles of you know, sin before I was a Christian and then in my early stages of being a, a new Christian. And there was a stage in my life before I was a Christian, you know, I, I lived a very promiscuous lifestyle. There was a lot of substance abuse. You guys have heard it all before. But there was a period in my life where I tried to become a good person. And I, I tried to focus on the badness of the things I was doing. But it wasn't enough. It's like my affections weren't changing. Now, don't get me wrong. There, there is an important aspect to understand the, the badness of something. But that's not the whole picture. It wasn't until I saw Jesus and I knew and understood the beauty of what he had done for me that even while I was sinning, he pursued me and he loved me and he kept knocking on my door and he died in my place and he rose again to give me new life and he put his Holy Spirit in me that all of a sudden the beauty of the life that he wanted for me, the design that he had for my life, the patterns that he wanted me to follow and what it was for and how it fit into his kingdom and his grand design for redemption and renewal in the world. I was like, that's what I'm made for. And it put new affections in my heart. If you talk to anyone who's been a Christian for any length of time, they'll, if they're honest, they'll tell you the old desires probably didn't disappear but they became overpowered by new ones. Thomas Chalmers, who was a great preacher of another era, he describes it in a sermon. I love this sermon title. It should be an album. It's called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Oh, somebody like, ooh, yes, right? It should be an album. The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Here's what he says. It is seldom that any of our bad habits or flaws disappear by a mere process of natural extinction. But what cannot be destroyed may be dispossessed. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of a new one. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that the spirit of adoption is poured out on us. It is then that the heart brought under the mastery of one great and predominant affection is delivered from the tyranny of its former desires. Listen, I've known people who were addicted to porn find freedom not just by understanding the badness, but it's when they knew Christ's love for them to forgive them of their sin and also show them that the way that you are to view other men and women are as image bearers of God that are worthy of your dignity and your respect and your love. And it's that beautiful vision of, man, I'm supposed to use my life to honor other people. Like that's a part of God's story. That's beautiful, isn't it? I've known people who were 
addicted to substance abuse, and it wasn't only that they found freedom in understanding the, the consequences of, let's say, an alcohol addiction, but also the beauty of, hey, God wants you to use your body in this way with sobriety of mind and freedom in the Holy Spirit so that you can serve the men and women and children in your life. It's a beautiful picture. I've known people who were just weighed down with their, their bitterness and resentment towards other people. And the way they found freedom wasn't just by focusing on the badness of bitterness, but the goodness of how Jesus Christ wanted them to forgive others just as Jesus had forgiven them. That is what released their hands off of their, their, their grudge that they had towards others. Those that had a hard time loving their enemies find the freedom to do so when they see how Christ Jesus has loved them. I've known people who were freed from greed, not just by focusing on why greed is bad, which is important to understand, but why generosity is so good that you were made to give. You have a generous God. Everything that we have is because God is generous. And when you get that vision and see what he's done for you and what he wants to do in the world, you're like, yes, I'm in. It's the expulsive power of a new affection. It's not just that the old desires are gonna expire. It's that they're overpowered by new ones. That's what grace teaches us. And what better way to illustrate that than a children's book from the 1970s? <laughs> My personal favorite, The Adventures of Frog and Toad. <laughs> Anyone? Oh, if you don't know, don't worry, because it's actually a very simple um, collection of adventures between two friends in the woods, a frog and a toad, of course. Now, while I don't believe that their adventures explain everything you need to know about change, one story is helpful, and it's called Cookies. <laughs> Frog and Toad are in the middle of binging on this freshly made batch of cookies, and Frog says, why, Toad, we must stop or we will make ourselves sick. And Toad replies, yes, as he takes another cookie. And they say, we've got to do something. And Toad says, I know. Let's put them in a box. So they put the cookies in a box. And thus begins their attempt at curbing their binge. So first they put them in this box with a lid, realizing, however, that the lid would not keep them from the cookies. So they then tie a string around the box. Well, this won't do either because scissors can cut a string. And then Frog gets a ladder and then he puts the cookies in the box, ties it by a string and puts it on the highest shelf. And then Toad says, but we can just climb up the bookshelf and we can cut the string and we can open the box. And Frog's, uh, Frog says, Toad, you're right. You know what we need? Willpower. Strengthened by this epiphany. They proceeded to take the box of cookies outside and throw them to the birds who would eat every last one. And Frog in his triumph says, you see, Toad, we have willpower. No more cookies. And Toad says, you know what? You can keep your willpower. I'm going to go home and bake a cake. <laughs> now, it's a cute story, but there's something of truth in there that describes how many of us view change in the present. Or dealing with your sin, you're like, I know, I'm going to put it in a box. Oh, no, no. I'm going to put it in a box, and I'm going to tie it with some string. That's how I'm going to overcome my sin. I'm like, no, no, no. You need to add even more safeguards. You need to, like, put it up on the shelf. 
And again, please don't misunderstand. The, the rules and the warnings are good, like the very law of God. The law of God is like the guardrails on a windy country road, showing you that if you go off, there is danger, and it can even help protect you from going in that danger, but those railings will never be the fuel in your car to push you forward to your destination. The law or the, the guardrail showing us we should not do this. These are the consequences, but it is the grace of God at work in our heart that changes us from the inside out so that we learn to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. So that you're no longer resorting to like, oh, if I just try to do this, if I just try to do that, it's the grace of God that teaches you. And Paul gives three examples. Grace changes the way you relate to yourself. It is now self-control that grace teaches you that overpowers these old affections with new ones. You say, wait a minute, the purpose of my life is not to fulfill my own desires, but to glorify God. Grace changes the way you relate to others. He mentions uprightness, which is really justice towards the men and women around you from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people that you learn to love them because of how Christ has loved you. And grace changes the way you relate to God knowing that you've been favored by God, not because of what you've done, but because of what he has done, is the fuel your heart needs to run towards him, not away from him. Grace transforms your present, and you don't need to worry about grace running out, because lastly, grace secures your future. How does grace change your life? Grace redeems your past. Grace transforms your present, and grace secures your future. See, the Greeks, they believed that one day there would be an end. There would be an ultimate unveiling, the word again, appearing, that would transform the world. And Paul says, you're half right. There will be, but it's not going to come in the way that you think. It's going to be God. He is the one that is going to accomplish this, and it is going to be by grace. There will be another appearing or an epiphany, and that is the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 13, he says, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who has come and who will come again to bring us into glory. And this should not create within us anxiety, but expectancy. Just like a newly engaged couple might be excited amidst all the, the wedding responsibilities that, that one day it is coming when they will live in a, a new stage of relationship. So the believer anticipates that glorious day in the future as they live in the present. And so Paul now, having declared Jesus as Savior, he goes on to describe his saving work and what grace is in verse 14 and 15. Jesus Christ, what did he do? How did grace appear? He gave himself. He gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are very own, eager to do what is good. These then are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Friends, notice what he does. The grace of what has been done in the past 
and the grace that has been promised in the future is key to living in the present. So Paul has told us of two appearings, two interventions. Christ has come. What did he do? He gave himself to redeem us from our sin and from our past. But there's another appearing. It's going to happen in the future. Jesus Christ will come again and he will remake the world. It's the grace of these two appearings, these two epiphanies. Christ has come, Christ will come again, and you need to hold both together if you are to grow in the present, like a pair of headphones. Now, if any of you enjoy music or you watch movies or listen to a podcast on headphones, you will know that the worst thing ever is when one of your headphones doesn't work. It's the worst. You're like, I've got all bass and drums. There's no guitar and vocals. Especially those old recordings from the 60s. Oh, it's the worst when your headphone goes out. Or when you're flying on a plane, as I was the other week, and you, you stick your eighth, you know, whatever, eighth-inch adapter into the, you know, the little thing on your TV, and only one earphone works. You're like, I can't watch Lord of the Rings for eight hours with this, <laughs> which is my go-to on a flight to the UK. How can I do? One earphone is not working. You need both. Friends, the same is true about the grace of God. You need to know the grace of what has done, been done in the past and the grace of what's going to happen in the future. And some of you right now aren't experiencing growth in your present because you've only got one headphone in. Some of you know, yes, I know Christ saved me in the past, but I'm anxious and worried about the future. I don't know how I'm going to grow in the present. You're not listening to grace in stereo. Others of you, you're like, I know Christ will come again, but I don't know what to do with my past, my sin, my burden. Friends, we need to listen to the grace of God in stereo. Christ has come. Christ is coming again. And in between that, he is working in my life. It's the three tenses of salvation, past, present, and future. I have been delivered from the penalty of sin. I am being delivered from the power of sin. And one day I shall be delivered from the presence of sin. That is the good news of the grace of God at work in your life. The next best thing that you need to be looking forward to is the second coming of Jesus Christ, our blessed hope. He's going to remake the world. And some of you aren't rejoicing over that because you're looking for something else. You're looking for some other next best thing. You're like, well... I'm dissatisfied in my relationship. I need a new relationship. That's the thing that's going to change me. I'm dissatisfied in my job. Oh, if I just get my career on track, that's going to be the epiphany. That's going to be the intervention. Or I don't really like this church. Like, that's ah, just not how I would. If I could just find another church, that's going to be the next best thing. Friends, listen. If you're looking for another next best thing other than Jesus Christ, it's an illusion. The only next best thing that you should set your heart on is the return of Jesus Christ, visibly, gloriously, and triumphantly to remake the world. And all of this is because of grace. And that's how we learn to live free in the present. And Paul says, you've got to preach this, you've got to teach this, you've got to encourage and rebuke on the basis of the grace of God. Because if you preach anything else, there's no salvation. To say to a prisoner behind bars when the door is locked, be free, is an insult. 
To say to someone who's in jail and you walk up to them, hey, you're in jail, be free. It's an insult. It's locked. That's what religion does. That's what modern ideology does. Hey, be free. You're like, it's locked. But if the door of the prison has been opened for you and the voice says, be free, then that's not an insult. It's an invitation. Jesus Christ has swung open that prison door and he comes and he's not come to collect your rent or ask you to free yourself. He's like, I have come and I provided everything you need all because of grace. Now live like it. The door is open. Walk out of those prison doors. Be freed from those patterns of addiction. Be free from the the guilt and burden of your past. Be free from the worry and anxiety of the future. Why? Because Christ has come. He died for you. Christ is at work in your life in the presence and Jesus Christ will come again. He is knocking on the door of your heart and he's not come to collect the rent. He's come to give you grace. So you have three options. You can resist him, you can retreat from him, or you can receive. I recommend that you receive the grace of God today for whatever you need. Let's pray that we would right now because we've got a moment to respond and it's not about what you can muster up for God. It's about what you receive from him. Receive, receive, receive. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now we would not have a posture of thinking what we can do for you or how hard we need to try for you or how worthy we are or how trapped we are that we would not respond by saying, God, you don't know how bad my past is. You don't know how difficult my current patterns can be. You don't know how great my worry is. Lord, all of those reasons are us looking to ourselves and yet you come knocking that we might look towards you. You've provided grace that frees us from that burden of shame and guilt. I pray that we'd receive it as we receive your forgiveness, the finished work of your son on the cross. For those struggling with just being plateaued or dry or numb or just stuck, I pray that they would receive grace right now to overpower those old dead affections with new ones for you and for your glory. And for those worried and anxious about the future, wondering what their future might be, I pray that they would receive grace for it is by grace that you will come again for your church. And God, I pray that as we receive, that we would be transformed, that we would be set free, that we'd experience freedom and joy and hope even now. Holy Spirit, will you move in our hearts? And friends, in an attitude of prayer, I just feel compelled to ask you to as we're in this attitude, just put out your hands in front of you, palms up. It's nothing creepy. It's just like put as a physical posture, hopefully representing your heart. Just put out your hands in front of you, palms up. Like you're in a posture of receiving. And hopefully this reflects your heart saying, God, I don't want to resist you in my pride, nor do I want to retreat from you in fear thinking that I got to pay my rent, but my hands are open and thus my heart is open to you. Overwhelm me by your grace. God, I pray as we receive that we'd be changed now in Jesus' name.